I trust we pay attention to what we sing here on a Sunday morning. Uh, I think probably, I think this is fair to say, one of my favorite lines out of all of the songs, choruses, hymns I have ever sung, look, there is flowing a crimson tide. You little ones, you know what that means? A little bit of verbiage in there, isn't there? Look, there is flowing a crimson tide. Crimson, red, red tide, Christ's blood. Look, there is flowing a crimson tide, whiter than snow you may be today. It doesn't get any better than that. What it is to look to an all-sufficient Savior and what it is to bathe in the blood of Christ, that is... To know what it means to be united to him in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And upon that rock, have the absolute certainty, the unwavering conviction that God's condemnation is turned away and his forgiveness is secured not only for today, but for all all eternity. The powerful working of God. That was our, our title last Sunday. As we looked at Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 through 15, the powerful working of God. It's a reference to the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. That as we look at his death upon Calvary's cross, as we behold his interment, and most certainly, above all, as we behold his resurrection, we see God's powerful working. Not only do we see his powerful working in Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, But equally true, equally glorious, we see God's powerful working when he does indeed unite us to Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, thereby causing us to be born again to a living hope. That's what we considered last Lord's Day, the powerful working of God. I gave you, if you were here, you'll undoubtedly remember, I gave you four examples of that powerful working. I'm going to begin today by repeating the fourth. Why? Because it serves as a tremendous lead-in, a a great introduction to the verses we're going to look at in Colossians chapter 2 this morning. And so just pay attention as I share with you again this, this fourth example of the powerful working of God. It's adapted from a book I read several months ago by Jeremy Walker. Uh, in, in Christ... Life in Christ, I think is the title. Highly recommend it to you. Life in Christ by Jeremy Walker. And here's this example of the powerful working of God. There is a woman locked in a mere form of godliness. She is always in place on Sunday morning. She reads her Bible every day. Her orthodoxy is stellar. She can sniff out a heretic a mile away. She is happy when the preacher tells the truth, but feels he should leave the application to the Holy Spirit. She likes it when the preacher addresses hypocrisy and sincerely hopes Mrs. Jones was listening. She lives life in the accusative case. She is very quick to let people know when they have not reached the required standard. Listening to her is like drinking vinegar. Then one day, she begins to feel her heart's sins. She begins to weep over her heart's sins. She forgets about all her grievances toward others. She is enraptured with the glory of God. She is found talking with others about the beauty of Christ. She is filled with thankfulness. Her prayers become the stutters of a broken heart. Her prayers crash like waves upon the shores of heaven. What has happened? She has been born again. It is an example of the powerful working of God. I begin with that example this morning uh, because, as I mentioned, it serves as a great lead-in to our verses in Colossians chapter 2. It demonstrates for us the conversion, not merely of a sinner, but of a particular kind of sinner. It demonstrates for us the conversion of a legalist, the conversion of a legalist. Now, legalism takes many forms. 
Legalism comes in many shapes and sizes and colors and uh, has many different expressions. But at the root of all legalism, no matter what form in which it shows itself, at the root of every form, every instance of legalism is this premise. God's acceptance of me is based on my performance. That's it. You take away the, 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 the exterior. Uh, just disregard the form, whatever form it shows itself in. And when we cut away through all of that, and we get right to the heart of the matter, this premise is always there. It is always a resident in the heart, simply again as follows. God's acceptance of me is based on my performance. That is the worldview of the legalist. That is the default mode of the legalist. It is, I, I, can't, I can't be guilty of overemphasizing this. It is of paramount importance. We come, we come to grips with the essence of legalism that we never lose sight of its heartbeat and, and its thinking patterns, it, its thought processes, it's extremely important for a couple of reasons. Let me just impress these upon you briefly at the outset. The first is this. Legalism, when it's all said and done, keeps people out of the kingdom. Therefore, it should grab our attention. Legalism keeps people out of the kingdom. I had a few thoughts Monday morning when I was in here, and so I've had the week to really analyze these thoughts from every angle, I think, well, maybe that's a little too much. Maybe that's, eh, I don't know about that. And, and, and I've critiqued this thought from every angle, but here I stand before you today, and I'm, I'm as convinced of it now as I was more Monday when it began to take shape in my thoughts. It is simply this. Um, there will be, there will be far more people in hell as a result of legalism than all other sins combined. I believe it. There will be more people in hell as a result of legalism than all other sins combined. Uh, That should get our attention. That should make us sit up and, uh, and want to know more about this subject. Want to know more about, yes, those thought processes that are involved, how to identify it, how to overcome it. Second reason why this is extremely important is as follows. Even as Christians, those who profess faith in Jesus Christ, those who have been washed in that crimson tide, whiter than snow you may be today, even those of us who say amen, a thousand amens to that glorious truth. Do you know until the day we die, the default position of our hearts will be legalism? We will struggle with it until the day the Lord takes us home. It will be like that nagging injury from childhood, whatever, or that scar that stays with you the rest of life. It is a natural inclination of the heart, a proneness in which we gravitate effortlessly toward legalism. And so we're going to consider this subject today on the basis of Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. Before we dive into those verses, let, let me just give you the, an overview of this book so you see where we are and you can put it in a larger context. There are, simply put, four main sections in the book of Colossians. The first section begins in chapter 1 right at the outset. Uh, bear in mind, those of you perhaps aren't that familiar with God's word, The big numbers, the chapter divisions, the little numbers, the verse divisions, they are not inspired, right? We're all aware of that. They're not part of God's Word. They were added much later, years later, centuries later, in fact, simply to help us find different passages, navigate our our way around God's Word. If they had consulted me, they didn't. No wonder why. But if they had consulted me, I would have objected strongly to the way in which they divvied up the book of Colossians. I don't think it's very helpful. The first section, chapter 1, it goes all the way through to verse 3 of chapter 2. That's where I would have ended chapter 1, verse 3 of chapter 2. And I would have written one word over that chapter, doctrinal. 
That's the essence of that first section. Paul is very doctrinal, especially as he unpacks the sufficiency of the Son of God. For me, chapter 2 would begin in what in our Bibles is chapter 2, verse 4, and yes, continue to the end of chapter 2. And I would have written the word polemical over that section because here Paul is a little feisty, right? Not frisky, feisty. And he engages in a battle with opponents, perceived opponents, those who he believes are going to cause problems in the church at Colossae, and he hits these opponents head on. He's combative, he's polemical. The third chapter, yes, chapter 3, verse 1, this is the third section. I would have changed this, I would have had it go all the way through to chapter 4, verse 6. For me, that's where the third chapter would end, because that's where the third section ends, and you write over this section the word practical, because here Paul begins to apply his doctrines and his polemics in the lives of these believers. And in the fourth section, not really exciting, but there it is. It begins in verse 7 of chapter 4 through to the end, and it's simply a list of greetings. So there you have it. That's the book of Colossians, bird's eye view as you sort of look down on it, four sections. Doctrinal, right? Doctrine. And then polemical, as he argues, back and forth, almost presenting his case like a, like a lawyer in a court of law. Then you have the practical, and then you have his greetings. What section are we in? We're in the polemical. It begins in verse 4 of chapter 2. I say this in order that no one may delude you, deceive you, take you by the hand and lead you down the garden path with plausible arguments. They're out there. You're going to hear them. He hones in, focuses in on four. The first is what I call humanism or human tradition, beginning in verse 8. We've looked at that. There are three left, three remaining plausible arguments. Legalism is number one. Mysticism is number two. And asceticism is number three. They are found in this chapter, beginning in verse 16, right through to verse 23. Let me read that section in its entirety, and then we'll come back in and give our full attention to verses 16 and 17. And so listen to the reading of God's word. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath, These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. But they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. There you have it. Three remaining plausible arguments. And he is begging, so to speak, the believers in the church at Colossae to stand firm as they face these plausible arguments so that they might not be deluded, deceived. Legalism, mysticism, asceticism. They are, you noticed it undoubtedly, intertwined because they are interconnected in these verses. We're going to kind of hit these verses and they're going to break apart into three sections and we're going to focus on each in turn. Today, legalism. Next Sunday, mysticism. Sunday after that, we'll, we'll wrap it up with the third, the third asceticism. So legalism, verses 16 and 17. What we have here is very simple. We simply have a commandment. Look at what he says at the outset of verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you. There you have it. It is a command. 
The Apostle Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, let no one pass judgment on you. To understand the commandment, we need to come to grips with three things. The first is this. Look at Paul's reason, reason for this command. So there's the first, the reason for the command. Well, well, where is the reason? Look at the very first word in verse 16. What is it? Therefore. When you see that word, what should you immediately assume? What Paul is about to say relates to what he just said. And what has he just said in verses 11 through 15? He has affirmed that wonderful doctrine of union with Christ. What it means to be circumcised in Christ. That is what it means to be one with Christ in his death, his burial, and resurrection. He has pondered the significance of that union legally. As a Christian, united to Christ, one with him in this mystical union is indissoluble. It's an eternal union. Because I am one with him, it has a legal significance. I'm one with him, therefore his death is my death. It's mine. His burial is my burial. And his resurrection is my resurrection. That means his payment on my behalf for my sin. And his endurance of God's unleashed wrath upon Calvary's cross, guess what? Legally, it is mine. And therefore, I am forgiven in Christ. I am clothed with the righteousness of Christ in Christ. And all of my hope is fixed in Christ. But not only am I one with him in his death, burial, and resurrection legally, I am one with him in his death, burial, and resurrection virtually. Meaning what? That the Holy Spirit now resides within me. And by virtue of his presence in me, the power of sin has been broken. The flesh. That is the old nature. All that I was in Adam was condemned at Calvary's cross. It was buried. And I am raised again to newness of life in Christ Jesus. So not only is the penalty of sin paid, but the power of sin is broken. Verse 16, therefore, in other words, if you get what I have said in verses 11 through 15, this is Paul's thought flow, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you. You see, that union with Christ legally and virtually is transformative, and it alters your relationship to other things. He is thinking in the context primarily of the law. It changes. Because you are in Christ, you have a different relationship now with the law. So there's the reason for the command, union with Christ. Second mark is this. Look at the content of the command. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you. He doesn't stop there. He has something very specific in mind. In questions of food and drink. So what you eat, what you don't eat, what you drink, what you don't drink. Or with regard to a festival, that's annual, or a new moon, that's monthly, or a Sabbath, that's weekly. So these days that constitute the Jewish calendar. And so what is he talking about here? He's referring to the law. But we need to be far more specific in our definitions. We need to step back in time and all the way back to the Exodus. All the way back to that towering figure in the history of the nation of Israel, Moses. He leads that that multitude out of Egypt. He gathers them at the base of Mount Sinai. The glory of the Lord descends. You have that cloud enveloping the, the, the mountain. You have the trumpet blast. You have the lightning and the thunder and everything else. Moses ascends into the midst of the smoke cloud where he receives the law. And that's why it's called the Mosaic Law. And we have all of those details, nitty-gritty details in the book of Leviticus, Exodus, Deuteronomy. Historically, theologians have identified three kinds of laws within the Mosaic Law. Oh, I know this is tedious, but it's so important. And we could have such completely sidestepped so much confusion when it comes to our relationship to the law if we keep these three categories in view. Firstly, there are laws which we call Moral, thou shalt not murder. You know what? That commandment applies to all people in all places at all times. It is a revelation of the eternal will, character, holiness 
of God. It is a, we call it a moral law. But then there are other laws in that Mosaic law uh, which are of a civil nature. That is, they have to do with governance. Because at Sinai, God established a theocracy. He was the head of the nation, and he gave them laws as to how they were to govern themselves as a theocracy. There has never been another physical theocracy. There is a spiritual theocracy now with Christ at its head, but the physical theocracy ended with the last Davidic king, his death, substituted by its fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so all of those civil laws no longer apply. We might turn to them for wisdom, and we might find certain truths and principles in them, but we are no longer bound to that civil law. There is thirdly, Have I lost anyone? Oh, don't raise your hand. Here we go. There is thirdly, the ceremonial law. Laws pertaining to what? Religion. And so there are feasts. Passover. The Day of of Atonement. Seven annual feasts that the nation had to celebrate. There's a temple. Tabernacle temple. With an altar. Altar of incense. An altar where they sacrificed all their animals. The Ark of the Covenant. There's a priesthood with all of his elaborate clothing and all those elaborate ceremonies. There's a series of washings. There are dietary laws. All of these things, they constitute what? The ceremonial law. That is what Paul is referring to here. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a... Sabbath, that's the content of his command. And now look thirdly at the logic behind his command. Brings us into verse 17. These, what's he referring to? What's he just, what he has just mentioned in verse 16, the food, drink, festivals, new moons, Sabbaths. These are what? A shadow of the things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. So there's some visitors here this morning. Now let's imagine I catch up with you. I've never met you, but I catch up with you out in the parking lot. Let's imagine the sun is shining. I'm not sure it is, but hypothetically, work with me. The sun is shining. And, and so you have what? A, a shadow, right? This isn't too difficult. Uh, I approach you, and I stare at your shadow. And from your shadow, I discern, relative to my own shadow, something of your size, your thin or not so thin, your height, right? Um, I might be able to discern the length of your hair. If you turn sideways, uh, the length of your nose, is it sort of one of those perky noses or more noticeable like mine? I I might be able to discern something about your clothing. Do you have a hat on? Are you wearing baggy clothes? That's it. If I want to know what you look like, what do I have to do? I actually have to take my eyes off the shadow and look at you. I look at you face to face. That's what Paul is saying here. The Old Testament, the entire ceremonial law, Christian, think through it all. The tabernacle, you know, the earthly tent, the temple, the, the priesthood, the Aaronic priesthood, all those sacrifices, all those offerings, all that blood, all those regulations about washing and what you could eat and what you couldn't eat. It's all part of what? A shadow. Every shadow has what? A body. This shadow has a body. The body is Christ. And so Paul's point, the logic here is very simple. If you want to know Christ, you look at Christ. And Christ has been revealed now in his fullness. You step back into the Old Testament, you return to the days of a shadow. And the shadow was given for a purpose. It was to give a dim outline impression of the body, the one who would ultimately come. But it was only a shadow. It pointed to things that were coming. The substance, the body, Christ. And so the logic is this as he writes to the church at Colossae. Here are some things you're going to hear. You're going to hear people running around saying, you shouldn't be drinking that. And you most definitely should not be eating that. 
You should be washing your hands in this way. You should be doing this. You should be observing these days. You should be attending these festivals. You should be getting excited about this. You should be doing this. You shouldn't be doing that. And Paul's logic is this. Look, I want you to understand it. Those people are living in the shadow. It was a shadow. It was temporary. It's gone. Because the substance has arrived, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that is the reason for his command, the therefore pointing us backward, verses 11 through 15. We have the content of his command, focusing on the ceremonial law, and we have the logic behind his command, because he knows this plausible-sounding argument is going to come. Perhaps it's already circulating. These believers will hear at some point, oh, you're saved? Fantastic. You believe in Jesus Christ, praise God, so do I. But to be really saved, but to be really sanctified, to be really spiritual, to be really close to God. Oh, it sounds so pious, doesn't it? You must observe these laws. Paul's point is what? What's the commandment? Let no one pass judgment on you. Understand, you now belong to the substance, Christ, and that shadow is gone, and it is gone forever. Now, he knows these people will be susceptible to this fine-sounding argument. We're susceptible to that plausible argument. Why? I'll give you two reasons. There are a number of reasons. Let me just give you two. The first is this. Many of us, even today struggle to understand our relationship to the ceremonial law. Many Christians. Um, and so I've met. I take, I take the profession of faith at face value. I've met believers who, um, who get excited about celebrating Passover. Okay. I've met Christians who will turn to the Old Testament in terms of rules and regulations concerning what they can eat, what they can't eat. Okay. I've met Christians who want to turn the Lord's Day to Saturday and uh, institute the more ceremonial aspects of Sabbath observance as they are found in the Old Testament. Okay. And I have met many other Christians who fall into a similar pattern of thinking. And I'm left but with one conclusion. Something, something, isn't, something just isn't quite measuring up. Something is missing in their thinking. They've, they've failed to grasp that the shadow is gone. It's gone, folks. The substance, the body, has arrived. And we gaze upon Christ face to face and are no longer bound to those aspects of the shadow which served a very important function in the Old Testament, but have now given away to the greater reality being the Lord Jesus Christ. And so some people do struggle with that dichotomy. And so they are susceptible, I've met them, susceptible to that kind of thinking, that kind of plausible argument. But even more common, the reason why some of us are susceptible to this kind of plausible argument is as follows. Some of us struggle. We struggle to understand what it really means to be in Christ. And because we struggle to understand what it really means to be in Christ, we are still susceptible to that little nagging voice in the back of our heads that in some way, I'm not quite sure what, in some form, I'm not quite sure how, but God's acceptance of me depends upon my performance. And because that nagging voice lingers in the backs of our heads, there is this particular susceptibility to this particular plausible argument. Okay, you're saved, but to be really sanctified, to be really holy, to be super spiritual, and to really know God, Here's what you must do. It is the spirit of legalism. 
Now, in, our, in the remainder of our time, I'm going to unpack this spirit by asking four questions and trying to answer these four questions the best I can. Question number one is this. Where exactly? We've already seen something of this. But where exactly does legalism come from? It comes from one fountain. The fountain is pride. But that fountain, as it emerges from the ground, sort of expresses itself in two streams. Here's stream number one. Legalism arises from the notion that my performance pleases God. Legalism arises from the notion that my performance pleases God. God must be pleased with the fact that I go to church every Sunday. Haven't missed in 17 years. Hope he keeps count as well as I keep count. God must be pleased with the amount of money I give to the church. God must be pleased with how busy I am. Oh, the multitude of activities that I give myself to. God must be pleased that I'm not like that guy over there. I'm not going to say anything, but I'm sure he's pleased. I'm not like him. That is the spirit of legalism, which flows from this stream, this notion that my performance in and of itself pleases God. The second stream flowing from the same fountain is as follows. Legalism arises from the notion that my performance influences God influences God. And so Tim Keller writes in one of his books, the default mode of the human heart is to seek to control God through our performance. The default mode, that means the automatic mode. If left to ourselves, this is the mode we slip into. The default mode of the human heart is to seek to control God through Our performance. How does that work? It works simply as follows. That if I do this, God must do that. If I behave this way, God is obliged to behave that way. If I refrain from this, then God is obligated to do that. I met this woman, I can't even remember the context now, but just the the conversation just burned on on my memory. It's got to be, I was maybe 20 years of age, so we're going back quite a while. And this woman was maybe in her 70s. And I can't even remember how we got on the conversation, but it was the hope of glory, the hope of heaven, and the the grounds of our hope. What is our hope based on? And, and, And these words, she uttered them to a word. I've played piano for 30 years in the church. God has to let me in. I've played piano in the church for 30 years. God has to let me in. What is that? That is legalism. Legalism arising from the notion that my performance pleases God or legalism arising from the notion that my performance influences God. We're susceptible to this because we fail to fully come to grips with Paul's declaration, I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh. In other words, there is nothing I can do that in some way, fashion, form pleases God. And there is absolutely no way I influence God through any aspect or component of my behavior. But that's where it comes from. Second question is this. How does legalism manifest itself? I'm going to build four statements. If you don't get these, you get the tape. Well, we don't have tapes anymore. The CD, whatever it is, you get that later. And you listen to these four steps carefully. Number one. The legalist begins by rejecting the doctrine of radical depravity. That's where he begins. Not in confession, but in practice. Did you catch that? The legalist begins by rejecting the doctrine of radical depravity, total depravity. Not necessarily in confession. He may still subscribe to it. I believe that. But he rejects it in practice. That's at the foundation. Building on that, the legalist reduces sin to actions rather than an innate condition of the heart. And so sins are actions. They are. 
But in the first instance, they are what? They are impulses. Their desires, what comes out of the mouth, what is expressed in life, is simply what is residual in the heart. But then he builds on that. The legalist creates a list of identifiable markers. Identifiable markers. Do's and don'ts. And then he builds on that. Fourthly, the legalist thinks his adherence to this list constitutes obedience. Did you get the four? Let me repeat them. Quickly, number one, the legalist rejects the doctrine of radical depravity, not necessarily in confession, but certainly in practice. And then he builds on it. The legalist reduces sin to actions, merely actions, rather than an innate condition of the heart. He builds on that. Thirdly, the legalist creates a list of identifiable markers. And then he builds on that. Fourthly, the legalist thinks his adherence to this list constitutes obedience. That's what the unbeliever does. These markers become the key to salvation. And so these markers, identifiable markers, these are the distinguishing factor as to why I am saved. Even the believer, there remains a susceptibility to this kind of thinking, not as it applies to salvation, but as it applies to blessing. And so I have these identifiable markers. And I think that through these identifiable markers, performance-based, somehow this will please God. Somehow this will influence God. And this will be the key to God blessing me. It is performance-based. And it is the spirit of legalism. Let me give you some practical examples. We can do this with our doctrines. I'm growing in my understanding of theology. I don't understand why people don't understand what I understand. Really don't. I can win arguments without even trying. I am a bastion of orthodoxy. God is going to bless me. We can do this with our ministries. I'm unbelievably busy. You wouldn't believe what I did for the Lord this past week. I'm leading studies, visiting people, offering help. I collapsed into bed last night. God is going to bless me. You can do this with our experiences. I get an overwhelming feeling of exhilaration whenever I pray. And I get an overwhelming feeling of despondency whenever I think of my sin. Oh, these feelings mean something's going on there and God is going to bless me. We can do this with our ethics. I can't believe what he did. Unthinkable. Thankful I'm not like him. I don't drink or smoke. I don't dance, and not just because I have no rhythm. God is going to bless me. We can do this with our causes. I'm picketing at abortion clinics. I'm ministering in the inner city. I'm involved in local politics. I'm championing civil liberty. I'm confronting racial inequality. Nothing wrong with any of those things. Fantastic. But because of those things, I think God is going to Bless me. We can do this with our convictions. I'm raising my children a certain way because I know that's what God wants. Do you know that big, thick book on child rearing? You know the one. I follow it to the letter. As a matter of fact, I've added a couple of chapters. I know God is going to bless me. And we can do this with our distinctives. I go to a church that isn't like other churches. I'm glad my church does things this way. Look at the programs. Look at the activities. Look at the numbers. Would you just look? My church has it all together. And God is going to bless me. Do you know what we have in each and every one of those instances? A legalist. It doesn't apply to anyone here this morning, though, does it? I'm, I'm just preaching to the air. It is the spirit of legalism. It is this default position, even as Christians whereby we think my behavior, me, my performance, what I do, what I don't do, is the deal breaker. It makes all the difference in the world that somehow this is going to get God's attention. Somehow this is going to ingratiate me to God. And dare I say it? Yes, I'll say it. In some way, God is going to, oh, he's going to bless me. Oh, the legalist is setting himself up He is setting herself up for such a hard fall. Isn't he? Isn't she? 
This idea, some go through life like this. I do this, God will do that. I don't do that, God will do this. That it's all me influencing God, God reacting to me, 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 performance-based, performance-based, performance-based. We've got our deadlines, we've got our guidelines, we've got our challenges, we have our activities. We have this, we have that, we have this, and we're on to the next thing, on to the next thing. And if only I keep doing, keep producing, keep performing, keep performing, keep performing, God will bless me. God will make my life go well. God will remove suffering. God will remove the hindrances. God will save all my children. God will give me a great marriage. God will prosper me financially. God will do this. God will do that. God will do this. God will do that. It is the heart cry, my friends, of the legalist. The legalist. The individual who assumes our relationship with God has anything to do with our performance. When in actual fact, our relationship with God has everything to do with Christ's performance. That our acceptance... God's acceptance of me is not because I have ever obeyed in my life. God's acceptance of me is because the Lord Jesus Christ so wonderfully obeyed. And how liberating that is. How truly liberating that is to serve God, compelled and propelled by his grace. Question number three, why is it so dangerous? I think you could probably answer that one yourselves, but I'm going to answer it anyway. Why is it so dangerous? I could go on and on. You know I could go on and on, but I'm not going to. Four reasons. Limit myself to four as to why this spirit of legalism is so dangerous. Number one, it deceives. Oh, it deceives. It's so subtle and therefore so deceptive. Why? Because legalism gives the appearance of spiritual life. That's what it does. Legalism gives the appearance of spiritual life. It does that for individuals. Look at what I'm doing. I've checked off my to-do list. It can do that even with churches. That long after... Long after the Spirit of God has left a company of believers, you know it's true, that company of believers can continue on for a generation, perhaps even generations, if it has what? Enough rules and regulations in place that give an appearance of life when life is actually completely absent. Oh, it's so deceptive. It's dangerous because it flatters It flatters us. Legalism doesn't look like a sin. Adultery looks like a sin, doesn't it? Murder looks like a sin. Losing your temper looks like a sin. Abusing someone looks like a sin. Having a jealous, envious rage looks like a sin. But legalism doesn't look anything like a sin is supposed to look like. So the drunk, given to drunkenness, uh, he doesn't feel very comfortable in a church. The adulterer, adulteress, doesn't feel very comfortable in a church. But the legalist, here's the problem, feels right at home in a church. Because legalism is flattering. Because it is behavior-based. Third reason is this. Legalism distracts. It draws attention away from the things that really enslave us. And so I have, been in the churches, I have been in churches years ago. One in particular I can think of that majored on the Big Five. So if you ever travel to certain parts of Africa, they talk about the Big Five in terms of spotting game, elephant, rhino, lion, etc., etc. Well, I have been in churches, one in particular, which focused on the big five, not animals, sins. The big five, dancing, drinking, smoking, gambling, and watching movies. And as long as you had the big five in order, you were a believer. It is distracting. Why? Because it distracts attention from the heart sins. Never a sermon on envy. Never a sermon on bitterness. Never a sermon on gluttony. Never a sermon on gossip. 
Never anything that touches even the corners of the heart. It is all defined externally. And as long as there is an external observation, an external fulfillment of these external rules and regulations, do's and don'ts, I'm not commenting on the merit of these. It's not relevant to the point at hand. They might be extremely good. They might be extremely evil. It's not what's important. It's the mental concept behind it. That as long as I conform to an external list, I'm alive. As long as I conform to an external pattern of behavior, then God is pleased with me. Fourthly, it's so dangerous because it destroys. The bite of legalism is venomous. Its poison spreads throughout the body, blinding the eyes, plugging the ears, and paralyzing the limbs. It fractures the joy of friendship and fellowship. And it deadens the heart, leaving but a hollow shell. And the fourth and final question, I'm going to conclude with this one. How do we resist it? How do we resist it? Paul's answered that again with the very first word in verse 16. Therefore, that's how we resist it. We resist it by living in verses 11 through 15. We we, we resist it by basking in what it means to be one with Christ. What it means to be one with Christ and therefore, verse 14, verse 13, in fellowship with God. What it means to be one with Christ and therefore forgiven of our sins. That's verse 14. What it means to be one with Christ and therefore free from all that had formerly imprisoned us. How we resist legalism is by understanding that all that we are, we are by virtue of our union with Christ. It is by understanding that apart from Christ, we are nothing. We have nothing of our own. We bring nothing to the equation. We bring nothing to the table. We offer nothing to God. We come again with that declaration of the Apostle Paul just resounding our minds. I know that in me nothing good dwells that is in my flesh. My hope isn't in me. My hope is in another. My hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ. God doesn't accept me because I obey. Oh, hear this little paragraph. It's brief, but get this if you get nothing else. God doesn't accept me because I obey. God accepts me because Christ obeyed. Christ lived the life I was required to live. Christ died the death that I was required to die. And in Christ, God is satisfied with me. I don't have to prove myself to him. I don't have to perform. God is satisfied with me because he is satisfied with Christ. In Christ, God is pleased with me because he is pleased with Christ. And this reality liberates me to live for God. You all remember the story of the prodigal son. Poorly named. It's not really the story of the prodigal son. It's the story of two brothers. Right? Some of you are nodding. Okay. Older brother, younger brother. Both rebel against their father. Both reject their father. How does the younger brother reject his father and rebel against his father? By doing bad things. Give me the inheritance. Off he goes. He squanders it in a degenerate lifestyle. How does the older brother rebel against his father? Actually reject his father. Watch for it. By doing good things. He stays at home and he conforms. But his true colors come to the surface when? When that younger brother returns home in repentance and his father not only receives him but his father lavishes every conceivable kindness upon him the older brother resents it the older brother resents his father's reception of his younger brother moreover the older brother resents that his father is now lavishing what his inheritance again on the younger brother And what is the older brother's thought process? You are taking what is mine and you are giving it to him. I stayed home. I conformed. 
I did everything that was expected of me. I checked everything off on the list. Do you know what he's saying to his father? You owe me. And in that attitude of heart, he is revealing what he is at the very core of his being. He is a raving legalist. He is a performing, performance-based legalist who thinks he can manipulate his father, who has no real regard nor love for his father, who is simply interested in what he can get out of his father and believes he has coming, what he has coming, because he has conformed. You see, both the younger brother and the older brother, they both rebel. Both reject their father. And both stand in need of what? Repentance. The younger brother, the hedonist, we can spot him a mile away, can't we? Some of us have been there. We know. The legalist? Oh, we have no idea. I pray, my friend, if that's you, you're gathered here in this house this day. You've just heard what you have heard. And in your heart of hearts, you know, one year, two years, five years, ten years, twenty years, I I don't care. The motivating factor in your life has always been this. If I act this way, if I do this, if I refrain from doing that, well, then God owes me. That will guarantee salvation. That will guarantee God's blessing. Understand, my friend, that makes you the older brother. And that makes you just as lost as the younger brother. And that puts you in what? Need of saving grace. And that is a call and an admonition to you to repent of your sin, legalism, and come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And understand again for the third time, God does not accept us because we obey. He accepts us because Christ obeyed. Christ lived the life I was supposed to live, but I cannot live because I'm riddled with sin. And Christ died the death that I was condemned to die, that I might be set free in him. Our Father, we intercede this morning on behalf of those who still do not know the Lord Jesus Christ. We intercede earnestly and fervently praying that your spirit might accompany the proclamation of your word and might create life where there is nothing but death and might shine light where there is nothing but overwhelming darkness. We ask this for the furtherance of your kingdom among us. We ask it for your resplendent glory, and we seek it from you in the matchless name of Christ. Amen.